Welcome to the Climb Podcast. I'm Lynn Robbins. Today I'm speaking with Paul Cornea about how to teach at the bedside. Paul is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Welcome, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, let's start by defining bedside teaching. Most simply, this just means teaching that occurs in the presence of a patient. Can you talk a little bit about that? In my own experience, I'd say that um, patients really appreciate seeing their team discussing their case, coming to a consensus on what the plans for additional diagnostic treatments may be and therapeutic interventions will occur. There's something powerful, I think, in in that, in, in a patient observing that process going on right in front of them, and maybe just as, if not more importantly, allowing them to participate in that process. So are there things that you have to keep in your mind when you're in the presence of a patient? There are certainly occasions where the bedside teaching may not be optimal. High-stakes diagnoses, such as the potential for a cancer, uh, for example, sometimes uh, mental health uh, issues are uh, best discussed in a one-on-one situation. But by and large, I think by preparing the patient, by explaining what you will be doing, why you're going to do it, allowing them to be participants and in that discussion, I think that patients actually prefer this. Yeah, I think it's a time for them to actually learn a little bit more than they might otherwise learn. I think that's exactly right. When we have the opportunity for longitudinal engagement with patients, oftentimes the, the patient then begins appropriately to feel like one of the teachers. They, they know their disease processes best from their perspective, and it's important for them to, to share that with learners. And it's really important for learners to understand that these diseases are not abstract processes that occur in textbooks. They occur in the context of a, a patient, and each patient experiences these disease processes in a different way. So what do you think are the most common mistakes early attendings make when they're teaching at the bedside or in the presence of patients? Not being comfortable enough to do it and then not doing it. I think successful bedside teachers develop what we refer to as teaching scripts. Help me understand what a teaching script is. The one or two points that you want to impart uh, in a short amount of time, that's, that's the teaching script. And of course, you can prep yourself, right, by looking at the chart before you start to see your patient. It's absolutely critical. This preparation before rounds, in in today's teaching environments, bedside teaching does not happen frequently. So your learners may not have done very much of it, and it may be a bit of a foreign concept to them. So preparing them, as well as preparing yourself, is, is quite important. I make a point at the beginning of each of my my inpatient attending sessions of carving out 20 or 30 minutes before we go on our first set of rounds, one, to to simply get to know the the team, two, to explain why this is important, why I think it's important, what I hope to get out of the bedside teaching, uh, and mechanically how it'll work. Who's going to introduce the team to the patient, who is going to adjust the patient in his or her bed so that they're comfortable while we do this presentation, who will be giving the presentation, what my role is on this, uh, and what the other team members' roles are. Another critical aspect of bedside teaching is 
to ensure that the oral case presentations are concise. It's not a good use of time for the learner to read or recite their entire history and physical when you've already read it. The fact that we're able to access the medical record prior to rounds, we know what we're going to see on rounds. And so exactly to your point, we can then determine which teaching scripts we want to use on rounds. We can be well prepared for our teaching as well as our patient care. Do you have a format for the oral case presentation that you prefer? I want only the critical parts, the essential parts of the the history of present illness, key exam and lab findings, and then I I want to know what your plans are and what your assessment is. You know what would be helpful is maybe just to go through the key steps in terms of both prepping your learners and you yourself being prepared. Sometimes the first go-around, I do the presentation, the introductions, simply as a means of role modeling. I'll walk into the room, uh, we'll walk in together, I'll introduce myself and the learner and explain what our roles are. Let them know that we're going to briefly discuss the case, but that we value their input on on what we're discussing. And then hopefully I'll have uh, identified one little pearl that I'd like to teach after the presentation. And I always ask permission of the patient. So it sounds like you're very explicit. It is important to explicitly label what we're doing. And, and I'm explicit down to the amount of time that I'm going to take. There is a fear of being overly structured. Analogous to this notion that we should all be able to extemporaneously just teach on anything. I should just show up on rounds and whatever they tell me, I should have a great teaching script somehow in my mind that I can immediately come up with. Some small number of folks can do that, but I think most of us really do need to be well prepared, do need to be well structured. We are, have to be lifelong learners, and role modeling that in the real clinical setting, I think, is, is another you know, very powerful tool. So saying, I don't know the answer to that, uh, I think is important. I think if you can think out loud how you are going to approach this problem, verbally process your, your clinical reasoning for your learners, I think that's, that's really important. And if there is a question, for example, that is in a subspecialty realm, reviewing an EKG with the team at the bedside, and there's a question that comes up that I'm, I'm not absolutely certain of, um, I will we'll walk to the cardiology department, find a cardiologist, and sit down with them and allow them to teach us, teach all of us, myself included. Are you explicit oftentimes about the importance of knowing the boundaries of their knowledge so that they feel comfortable saying, I don't know? I think there's value to the Socratic method of of learning, but I typically do that in the team room rather than at the bedside. If I get asked a question as the attending in front of the patient and I acknowledge that I don't know the answer, I I hope it is clear to them that's okay. I don't want the patient to think that I... I don't know what's going on. My approach typically is, is simply to tell the patient that this is a complex situation without a, you know, a, a, a clear answer to me right now. I, I need to research this further. I need to discuss this with you know, some subspecialty colleagues, and then I will come back to you to discuss what I think the right approach should be. But I think that's also an important script to have at the ready. It's a great point. You're right. Do you have tips for assessing in the moment the degree to which 
your learner actually understands the case to the extent that you want mm. them to? The, the concise oral presentation requires a fair amount of knowledge and understanding. Uh, the teaching script then may rather may be the clinical reasoning part. Thank you for presenting that information in a you know in a in a concise fashion. I see the important points of the history and exam and lab data that you've pointed out. I would synthesize it in a, in a different fashion. There are many diagnoses for which there's not a technological tool to make the diagnosis. The diagnosis is made only by the history and the exam. One example being Parkinson's disease. We don't have a study that makes that diagnosis. We make that diagnosis by, by examining the patient. And something as simple as cellulitis, that's a, that's a bedside diagnosis. That's a great teaching script for, uh, you know, for me to go to the, go to the bedside and, uh, and explain why this is cellulitis and what mimics it. What else could it be? What are frequently misdiagnosed as uh, uh, cellulitis? Ultimately, the patient doesn't necessarily remember what a fantastic diagnostician you were, although that's very important, but they remember how you made them feel. Simple things that uh, introducing yourself to the patient and the other team members, uh, including to any family members or loved ones that are uh, in the room, positioning the patient so they're comfortable during the during the bedside rounding, trying to sit in a chair and be at eye level with the patient when you're uh, discussing the treatment and diagnostic plans, and then when you're finished, ensuring asking to ensure that they understand what what the plans are, if they have any other questions, and then you know, making sure that, that when you leave the room that they're comfortable and their needs are met. These are, I think, the professionalism and communication points that, that uh, I think learners take away and, and patients absolutely do appreciate. What about the developmental trajectory of learners? How do you deal with teaching at the bedside when you're trying also to increase learner autonomy? My role as the, as the teaching attending is, is not a static one. There has to be some fluidity uh, to, to how I approach uh, each, each team member, um, and again, dependent on their, their experience and, and, uh, and skill level. We want, we need uh, our residents to, to grow, to become increasingly autonomous over the course of their training uh, so that when they're finished, they're ready to, to be out um, practicing independently. I like to be present. I think it's important for me to be present on, on rounds as, as much as possible. The only way that I can really assess what their, their skill level is is by seeing them. I tell the person that's presenting, the senior resident is the one that's leading the team. This is, this is their opportunity to learn to become uh, a team leader, to make decisions on patient care. And so when that, when that gaze begins to come my way, I gently point it back towards the, the resident. And I intentionally try to physically remove myself, uh, take a step back from the, the circles so that the, the resident can be uh, in charge. It's important also for, for me to, to let them know that, that if there is something that I disagree with or something I feel should be done differently, I will add that. The, uh, a sports broadcast analogy is that the, the senior resident becomes the play-by-play -play announcer for the, for the game, 
And my role then is color commentary. The presence there allows me to offer constructive feedback on a variety of uh, parts of their, uh, of their training, their communication with patients, their uh, medical decision-making, the teaching that they may be offering those junior to them, because I'm seeing it in real time. We have come to, you know, come to recognize the importance of patient-centered care, that when we are taking care of patients, this should go without saying, but it hasn't always been the case, that the patient should be at the center of what we do. Um, similarly, when we're teaching and learning, the same holds true. The, the patient fundamentally needs to be at the center of that. Well, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Thanks so much for, uh, thanks for having me. That was great. Was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this CLIMB podcast on how to teach at the bedside. Check out the other podcasts in this series for helpful tips on how to teach effectively and efficiently in busy clinical settings. Thank you.